We are continuing our summer series where we're going through the Psalms. And as I have said before, we're not necessarily taking them in chronological order. Um, and this is the third summer that we've done this, just worked our way through the Psalms. And I had been several times, I had tried to go to Psalm chapter 2, which, by the way, is where we're going today. But every time it just seemed like I just, you know, if, if the Lord's not in it, you better not try it. You could, you know, it dribbled down you and hit the floor. But I felt like this time the Lord was, was, was uh, the timing was right for, for us to look at Psalm chapter 2. This is a challenging psalm. Uh, but I am willing to accept a challenge. Are you? <laughs> I have entitled today's message, and it'll come from the first verse that we read. Why do the nations rage? Why do the nations rage? There's always been opposition to God being the Lord over his creation. And that's because... His creation resists him being Lord. You know it. I know it. We still have this thing called our flesh that wants us to resist God being our Lord. This psalm will ask this question, why are people devising schemes that are empty and fruitless? Why are people spending energies and efforts on things that will not produce. Why do we hear repetitively agendas and narratives that we know will go nowhere? Or if they go somewhere, it will be fruit that we will not want. More importantly, how does God respond to these rebellions? How does God, what does he say? What does he think? And then, of course, if you're going to ask the question, how does God respond? We have to ask, what is our response? What is our response to be in all of this? And I think this psalm will help us, and I just pray the Lord will help me to say the right thing. Psalm chapter 2, uh, we're going to read all 12 verses, and I'm once again reading from the English Standard Version. If you wouldn't mind standing while we read the sacred scriptures. And again, the ESV says it this way, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. 
Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You may be seated. I think you would agree with me that today the nations are raging. When, when the, the psalmist wrote this, he was referring particularly to Gentiles. You could put in there, why do the Gentiles rage? For the sake of our conversation and for, sake, for the sake of the new covenant, we will identify the Gentiles, biblically speaking, as those who are outside God's family, outside the kingdom of God. Because that's really who he was talking about. As a matter of fact, the old King James refers to the Gentiles as pagans. And so we'll, we'll, we'll use that today in our reference. Why do the nations rage? It's interesting some of the language that is used here. And I wanted to point this out. The ESV says, why do the nations rage? Some of the versions there will say, why, does the th- why do they throng tumultuously? <laughs> Why do they noisily assemble? The New American Standard Bible says there, why are they in an uproar? Why are they in an uproar? And you'll agree with me, and I'm going to try to be careful here, but you'll agree with me today that it doesn't take much watching of the news or reading online or reading any news outlet today to understand that if you mention Jesus, there's an uproar. I'm, I'm hearing God's what not to say. But what happens is because, you know, I said recently, you, you talk about God the Father, a lot of people don't get too upset as long as you, all, you only talk about social justice. Now, do you understand I'm for social working? But we have reduced Christianity to a social act. And I want to tell you, it's a lot more than social justice, and it's a lot more than a social act. Well, I won't. These people in Psalm 2, they are revolting against God and his restraints. This is the bottom line of what, of what they are revolting against, his restraints. Um, you remember in the parable, we're not going to turn, but in the parable of the minas in Luke 19, the master, and of course this was a typology, but the master came to set up his kingdom and they, the workers said this, we will not have this man to reign over us. May I say to you today that humanity in its natural state does not want anybody to reign over us. No, We don't want anybody telling us what to do. And people try to tell you what to do makes you mad. Well, in some cases, it's right that they didn't, shouldn't tell us what to do. But but let's just not reduce let's not reduce God to that. And so these people are revolting, and they're casting off the the restraints. It says they were devising a vain or worthless, useless scheme and schemes. It's interesting that it says the rulers, the kings have set themselves. Some versions there say that they have taken their stand. 
The rulers, the kings scheme together, and they have a target. The, the powers that be in today's culture, today's society, in today's unregenerated world, they, revolt, they are revolting against anything that resembles the restraint of God, against anything that would dictate morality and, and boundaries. The target is the same today as it was when the psalm was written. They have taken their stand against. Everybody say against. Now say it like you mean it. Against. Against the Lord and against his anointed. Nothing's changed. The word therefore anointed. His anointed. If you're looking at a New King James or a, a New American Standard Bible or several others, you'll notice that anointed is capitalized because it, the Greek, I mean, the Hebrew word there is the word for Messiah, Mashiach. It's no, there's no question. There's no, it, you don't have to be, have a degree in hermeneutics to understand that he is referring to the Lord Jesus, our Messiah. And the nations have taken their stand against God the Father and God the Son. If they could figure out how to take a stand against the Holy Spirit, they would do that too. But I think the Holy Spirit scares them. They said, let's tear off their restraints. Let's cast off the cords. Let's remove the limitations that God would put on us. Let me hasten to add here that the limitations that God puts on you and puts on me and the boundaries that God sets for us is not because God is this old man prude sitting up in the sky hoping we can't have any fun. And I, it just it irks me that God gets painted like that. And you, I've talked about it before, this whole thing about Old Testament God being mean and Cranky, the New Testament, Jesus being sweet. And then there's Jesus making a whip and sitting in the corner and cracking the whip. I, you know, I don't know how many times I've recommended the book, Jesus Mean and Wild. They said, let's rip the chains apart and throw the ropes off of us. Let's remove the limitations. But the limitations that God puts on you as a human being is, is uh, for your benefit. I wasn't that long ago. I used the example that if you, if you take uh, uh, your vehicle and you pour water in your gas tank, well, it might run for a minute. But eventually, it's going to spit and sputter and it's going to stop. Why? Because your vehicle was not built to run on water. And you might say, yeah, but I'm my own boss. So I'm going to put water in it. Well, good. I hope you like walking. Now, who's, who determined that we should put gasoline or, in some cases, diesel in that vehicle? The one who made it. And the one who made you knows what you run on the best. And we come along and we say, 
I'm going to be my own boss. God, I'll, I'll call on you if I need you. Or if I want you to give me something, I'll call on. But until then, I got this. I'm going to put water in my gas tank. And then we fall down and we scrape our knees, proverbially speaking. And we say, God, why would you allow this to happen? God says, you put water in your gas tank, dude. And it's the same thing. It's the same thing. When, when, when God lists all of these works of the flesh, and we look at the things and we go, oh, my goodness, uh, let's get over into the fruit of the Spirit. But here's the problem. Many times we recognize the works of the flesh more than we recognize the fruit of the Spirit. And I'm talking about in the church. I'm not talking about the world. But society today, culture today, is casting off restraint. Why the rage? Why the revolt? Why would... Now, this is a little thing, I guess. But I'm going to show my age a little bit. Um... My wife and I were riding in a few minutes ago. Um, she rode with me today. She improved my image. <laughs> and we drove by the Little League ball fields, and she said, they're playing baseball on Sunday. Well, again, it's not the end of the world. When I played Little League baseball, we wouldn't even play on Wednesday night. We scheduled, our schedule was Monday night, Tuesday night, Thursday night, Friday night. We never scheduled a a baseball game on Wednesday night. Why? Because Wednesday night prayer meeting. Again, in some ways that's a little thing. In some ways it's sad. Where'd I get off on that? Because the culture has revolted against what God says. Let's revisit that word against. They have revolted against the Lord and against his anointed. And I thought to myself, this word cannot mean just to oppose God. It's got to be, got to be, and I was right. Every now and then that happens. It's really a word that means to Set oneself above or over. It's a word that means to look down upon. So the world culture is seeking to set itself above the Father and above His anointed. The world culture is seeking to set itself in such a place that it can look down Upon God and his anointed. And in so doing that they would look down on you and me who are followers of God and his anointed. I think this is a good place for me to insert this here. I didn't know where. This message is not intended. Please. Don't let this message make you rise up 
and develop this us versus them mentality. Now, I don't have a Facebook page, but my wife does. And I steal her page every now and then. And I see things that people, and I'm going, people post. I'm going, man, a lot. It's like, it's like we have teams. We have the kingdom of God is one team, and the church is a team, and the world and the devil's a team, and we just can't wait. We can't let our team lose. It goes back to William Bramwell when he founded the Salvation Army when he would teach his cadets to go out and evangelize. And he would tell them, you cannot, I forbid you to speak to anyone about hell unless you're going to do it with a tear in your eye. There has to be something else here. This cannot be a competition. This cannot be, I hate the world. This cannot be, bless God, rain fire down on them, Lord. You may want to do that, but that's not the intention of this message. Before we're done, and you're probably thinking, is he ever going to be done? I hope we see what the intention is. Isaiah 14 is an interesting passage. Uh, Some believe that it uh, refers to Satan. uh, And we'll read the verses in just a moment. Uh, then the King James and the New King James uses the word Lucifer. And in the, in the most versions, it'll say shining star or star of the morning or because that's what that means. If it's not an actual reference to the devil, it is definitely a type of the devil. As the, uh, Isaiah is writing about the king of Babylon. So I think these verses... I think these verses have a double application. The basic sin that we see in Isaiah 14 is that of unchecked personal ambition. Desiring to be equal to or above God. This is not a new sin. This has been around a long time. And the nations that are raging are raging or making all of this noise because they want to rise above and be equal to God and look down upon God. Satan's fall was occasioned basically by two things, pride, and that pride was presumed to supplant God's rule with his own, and self-will that asserted independence from the Most High. Now, we need to examine our own hearts here. How much do we attempt, even unknowingly, to supplant God's rule in our life? And how much do we have a self-will issue that is trying to be independent from God? Let me just tell you, you already know this. You're not going to make it without God. You're just not going to do it. You may think you are, and you may you may fool yourself for a while, but without God, you are never going to make it. The verses say this, shining morning star, and this is where a lot of the versions will put in the word Lucifer, how you have fallen from the heavens. You said in your heart, 
I will ascend to heaven above. Everybody say above. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Again, whether you think that's an actual direct reference to Lucifer, the Satan, or not, I still think it's a type, whether it is that or not. It gets a little clearer in Ezekiel when he says, again, double application. By the way, the Scripture does this a lot. The Scripture offers a lot of double application of your watch. But he's writing to the king of Tyre, but he says something interesting to the king of Tyre. He, he says, uh, um, you were in Eden, the Garden of God. Now, do you think the king of Tyre was in the Garden of Eden? I don't either. But then he says this, you were the anointed with far-reaching wings, cherub. Cherub? Did you see that word cherub? Do you think the king of Tyre was a cherub? I don't either. I like it when you agree with me, Bill. Thank you. And I placed you there. Verse 15. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. Do you think the king of Tyre was perfect? I'd like to meet him if he was. Till iniquity was found in you. The fall of any proud person, any self-exalting proud person, reflects the fall of Satan. Why do the nations rage? Why are why is our culture in revolt against God? Because it's reflecting the influence of the one who's been influencing since the beginning, since they fell from heaven. That's Satan himself. You say, do I say all these people are devil worshipers? No, I don't say that. But I want to tell you that everything that's happening in our world today is intended to marginalize the influence and the impact of the Lord Jesus. From the time that King Herod had all the young boys killed under the age of two in that area so that he could eliminate the influence of this new king that demon is still around today. He may not be killing young boys, but he's trying every way he can to influence people to eliminate the influence and the impact of God and his government in our world. Just It's just the influence of our enemy, the influence of, of him. Well, that only gets us through three verses. Are you doing okay? Then we get down to verse 4 and we get God's response. What is God's response? Well, God laughs. God laughs at the vain and the futile efforts, or as Captain Picard would say, futile, for all you Star Trek people. Anyway, the futile efforts of man to escape from the control of, of God's laws and throw off his dominion. God laughs. Now, I just want to tell you, you don't want God laughing when you're doing things that he doesn't want you to do. 
You don't want to hear God laugh. God views this raging. God uh, views this revolt with contempt and scorn. And he has amusement. Don't you know God gets tickled at our weak attempts at rebellion? Don't you know God, he just got to laugh. Look at those goobers down there. They really think they're getting away with something. His laughter is one of derision. Some Bibles, some versions there will say he scoffs at them. Now, it's one thing when God looks upon revolt, rebellion, when God looks upon all of this noise going on around the world that opposes Christianity and opposes the Lord Jesus, opposes the influence of the kingdom of God in the earth, it's one thing when God laughs at that because he's amused by it. But the next thing that happens in this psalm is, is God says something when God speaks. When God speaks, you might wish he had just kept laughing. But God spoke. And he said, He will speak to them in his wrath and he will terrify them in his fury. How did he, how did he terrify them? How does he speak to them in his wrath? Now, see, we again, we think of a fire-breathing dragon. We think of a mean old God who's always ready to crush somebody. And we know he's not. Even in the Old Testament, if you read the Old Testament, instead of listening to what people say, you'll find out that the Old Testament God is just as loving as the New Testament. Just as gracious, just as merciful, maybe more. How does he speak in his wrath? How did he terrify them? Here's how he terrified them. Watch these words. As for me, I have set my king on Zion. How did he terrify them? I have set my king. Everybody say king. And that's a capital K, by the way, on Zion. And of course, it disturbs them. It, it alarms them. What is God's message? I have set my king. I have established. Some versions there will say, I have installed my king. Now, if you made the world, and you made the universe, and you made all the inhabitants of the world, you got the right to, who, to put whoever you want as king. And by the way, no one else does. Boy, y'all are quiet. God is in essence saying this. I have already decided who's going to rule the world. I have spoken, and nothing more needs to be said. Should have been more amens right there, but okay, that's all right. God has spoken. And you see, it wasn't that God tried to scare the nations, quote-unquote, in this psalm, but it's when he started talking about the king, 
You see, now this is, this is complicated, but I'm going to try to work my way through it. If Jesus is the king of my life, I'm not. You figure that out? And flip that around. If I am the king of my life, he isn't. You do know there's only one throne in your life. There's only one seat. There's only room for one. And so with, if God says, I have, I've installed my king, I've determined who's going to rule the world, and it's not you. <laughs> so if you are... If you are of an opinion that you want to be king of your life, then that's going to terrify you. He said, I've set up, I've decided who's going to be the king. Daniel saw it. He said, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days. You know who the ancient of days is. You notice in that version it's capitalized. Ancient of days, God the Father. And he was presented before him, the, the one like the Son of Man. And to him, the Son of Man was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now, we can wring our hands and we can throw mud on Facebook or whatever social media you might like. We can, we can say ugly words to people. We can, we can fret. By the way, we're not supposed to be doing any of that stuff. But at the end of the day, it's a kingdom which will not be destroyed. Not only that, Isaiah 9 teaches us it's a kingdom that will never cease to increase. Don't sit around worrying about God. And don't sit around worrying about God's kingdom. And certainly don't worry about God's church. Who said he was going to build the church? Jesus said, I will build whose church? My church. And we worry. Oh, boy. Did you see what they put on display at their store down there? You know what I'm talking about. Did you see? Did you did you see? Well, none of that is godly, and all of that should be opposed in in an essence of morality. But I'm not going to wring my hand saying, "Oh, what's going what's going to become of this world?" Well, I tell you what's going to become of this world. Going to get rid of it. Going to get us a new one. And until then, the kingdom of God will not be destroyed. It will not cease to increase. Jesus is king, will be king, never cease to be king, regardless of what the nations do. Daniel was seeing that. The Messiah's coming would inaugurate a new phase of God's rule on the earth. And Jesus did this by bringing the kingdom of God into human experience. He came as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he prayed, 
God, let your kingdom come on earth just like it's in heaven. God, let your will be done on earth just like it's being done in heaven. And he brought that into the earth. We even get a response from the son, and I'll pick it up here because I know we're trying to get to the car wash. Uh, In verse 7, it actually changes. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. So we actually see the anointed, the Messiah, begin to talk. He says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. I will make the nations your heritage. Nations as a heritage. By the way, let me say this. When he promised the Messiah that he would make the nations. Did you see that word? Nations. His heritage. That includes the nations in verse 1. You can't hate these people. Do you know they they probably hated the Apostle Paul one time? Because he was killing Christians. He was he was he held the clothes for while they were stoning Stephen, and then it says he was he was all for the death of Stephen. And then one day he was the greatest apostle we've ever had. One day he gives us two-thirds of the New Testament. So you can't be going, well, I bless God, I hope you get yours. Let me just tell you something. I hope you don't get what you deserve. Because I don't want to get what I deserve. And I don't want them to get what they deserve. What I want them to get is the mercy of God. But I want us to understand what's causing the world out there to do what we think is going crazy, which is for some people that's a, a short trip. Brother Charles said one time his dad, I wish y'all had known Brother Vernon. Brother Charles was telling his dad, he said, this, this lady in this church, she, she's, I'm about to, I'm, it's about to drive me crazy. And Brother Vernon said, for, for you golfers, you'll get this. Well, Charles, that's not a drive, that's a putt. He said, you shall break them with a rod of iron. Almost a bad translation there. It's really rule. You shall rule them with a rod of iron. And you'll dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Is God trying to crush us? No. I heard, uh, I think it was A.W. Tozer one time said that God can't use you until he hurts you. Until he breaks you. The word for meekness is a word that's used for horses that you would tame. Meekness is strength under discipline. It's not weakness. So finally, so we can get to the car wash, our response. What is our response? Well, he says, therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned. O rulers of the earth, be warned. And he says this, serve the Lord with fear. Now, let me just say this, and I, I hope you understand what I'm saying. But we need, we need more of the fear of God in the church. Boy, y'all went quiet on that one. See, because you thought of this mean old God that's got fire out of his nostrils 
and he's ready to crush you, and you're trembling because you're scared. I didn't say you were supposed to be scared of God. I said we need the fear of God. We need to see God just as he is. If you see God as he is, you will have a healthy fear or awe of God. He says, serve the Lord with fear. Serve the Lord as you see how big he is. Serve the Lord as you remember in uh, uh, the lion witch in the wardrobe. What did he say? Aslan was. He's not tame, but he's good. Not safe, but he's good. That's the fear of the Lord. Rejoice with trembling, he says. What's what's the trembling? I've used this not long ago, and I hate using it again, but y'all know I listen to Rick and Bubba a lot. And, uh, and, And they talked about meeting at that time President George W. Bush, and they were getting their picture made with him, and they were in line, and Rick... All the way up there was telling his wife, Sherry, what he was going to say to President Bush when he got next to him. He got to meet him, speak to him a few minutes. And uh, so he finally got up to where they were, they were standing. And uh, he and his wife stood beside, and he stood beside President Bush, and his wife stood beside Laura. And he walked up there, and nothing. <laughs> he said, I couldn't say a word because I realized. I was standing next to the leader of the free world. And I couldn't, I was speechless. Now, y'all know George W. Bush is not perfect. He wasn't God. He wasn't Jesus. But he was the president of the United States. And there was a certain amount of trembling that took place. Well, magnify that about a billion times. And you would understand what you would be like if you were in God's presence and you really saw God as he is. Not just some vending machine that you put coins in. And he said this, kiss the sun. Now I want to tell you, you already know this, but Jesus is not your boyfriend. That's not what that means. What it means is to pay kingly homage to him. To pay... Homage to the king. Kiss his ring, so to speak. Kiss the son that he might not become angry and you perish. Or his wrath soon be kindled. What is our response? When we, when we look at all of the reports that concern us, and we've had plenty. I started to try to bring a list, but I didn't know where to stop. But it occurred to me the list was not important because what's really important is what is our response. What is our response in all of that? That we would pay homage to the king. That we would serve the Lord with the fear of God. That we would rejoice in God with a healthy trembling of knowing who he is. That we would be obedient to him. That we would make sure that the spirit of the age is not the spirit that determines and governs our life. But the spirit of God would be the one who directs our path. God's anger and God's wrath are always, everybody say always. 
expressions of his perfect righteousness and his justice exercised against sin. Not the self-serving, out-of-control expressions that are common to man. We, we think of anger as throwing things, breaking things. God doesn't do that. God's anger brings us to righteousness. And it'll bring the world to righteousness. Now, is he going to take some folks out? That's his business. Is he going to eliminate some things? That's his business. Are businesses going to go out of business because of unrighteousness? That's God's business. I do know this, that righteousness exalts a nation. And that should be our concern, our response. Blessed are those, the last words of this song, who take refuge in him. Last Sunday, we talked about finding refuge and strength in the river of God. Today we, and that was Psalm 46, and I'll repeat the words, blessed are those who take refuge in him. Why do the nations rage? Because it's the spirit of the age. Why is there a revolt? Because Jesus is king and they can't do anything about it. Let's make sure that we don't have the same attitude. Let's make sure that Jesus is our king, our Lord, and we're obedient to him. Let me just finish with this one thing. I know we're running late. Tick-tock, tick-tock. One time a guy was speaking. He said, were you taking longer? He said, some people in the church are cuckoo clocks. <laughs> what does that mean? This was in the Baptist church. And, of course, you know, if you, if you never, if you didn't grow up in a Baptist church, and, by, by the way, I'm not knocking it because I, we, I learned a lot there. But it, you started at 11 and you ended at 12, not 1201. <laughs> and at 1201, at if the preacher was still preaching, you would see this. Those are cuckoo clocks. I'm just going to finish with this. In the scripture, the words believe and obey are interchangeable. You can't say you believe God if you don't obey him. And if you obey God, it's because you believe him. That's why James, the brother of our Lord, can say, hey, if you've got faith, then show me some works. He wasn't saying you were saved by your works. He was saying what I told the group last night at Charlie Daniels Park, that we don't do good works. I mean, we're not Christians because we do good works, but we do good works because we're Christians. And if you, if you don't obey God and you don't, trust God and you don't have some action, this is what James will say, if you don't have some corresponding action to what you're trying to tell me, don't tell me you have faith. Well, anybody can say it. Blessed are those who take refuge in him and leave the rest to the owner and the creator. Stand with me.